Jeremiah 17, 5 through 14. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who, tr who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its le leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is, a dece is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Thank you, Katrina. It's good to be here this Shabbat, by the way. Tu uh, Bishvat is... Um, this year just happens to coincide with Shabbat, so according to tradition, it, it has a special significance. Um, I remember as a kid in Israel, we would uh, celebrate Tu Bishvat, and um, we would uh, dress up and, and have, uh, you ready for this, asparagus wreaths, and we would sing songs and march around and it was a great time. Um, it's been a while, a couple of days, I guess. Um, by the way, in, if, if you're not aware of what Tu Bishvat really is, let me take a moment and explain it. Tu it comes from a couple of Hebrew le letters that basically mean 15 because uh, Hebrew... Um, one of the ways of numbering in Hebrew is using the letters of the alphabet. So Aleph is one, and Bet is two, and so on. So two, Tet Vav is 15. And as um, Linda was saying earlier, um, this comes from a, uh, the Mishnaic Times um, sometime before the first century where a couple of rabbis were having a discussion, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. You may, you may have heard of them. Rabbi Hillel was the touchy-feely guy, and uh, Rabbi Shammai was the no-nonsense kind of a guy. And they were having a dialogue. Uh, you know, the rabbinic dialogues were not exactly mild. Sometimes it included pounding on the table uh, to express opinions, but... Um, yeah, it had to do with how do you determine the age of the tree? In case you wonder what's the big deal about the age of the tree, well, uh, you had to be able to 
offer a tithe from the fruit of the tree. And if you don't know what, when the fruit began, you really can't know whether you need to shove it onto the next year or whether this is part of this year's crop. And uh, Rabbi Hillel won this one, and so they determined that it would, uh, that halacha, that rabbinic law would have it that it's the 15th of the month of Shvat. Uh, and by the way, the way you can tell this is you simply look up at the moon, and if the moon is full, you know you're somewhere in the middle of, it, of the Jewish or the lunar month, and uh, so that's how you know to be Shvat, um, if you're keeping track of the um, monthly cycles. Um, part of the significance for us is the fact that this is a... Um, it speaks not only of trees, and, and you may know that part of the celebration of Tu Bishvat is that people would get... Uh, would pay to have a tree planted in Israel in your name uh, or in someone else's name. And uh, this isn't just cute-ism, cute-ism, rather. Uh, you may be aware of the fact that uh, by the 1800s, uh, Israel was pretty barren because what had happened, you had successive waves of conquerors who came and chopped down the trees. Basically, a... a a massive destruction of the land uh, over a period of a couple thousand years. And so the Zionist pioneers, uh, including the Jewish National Fund, were very committed to the restoration of the land. Uh, they did things such as drain swamps uh, and, of course, plant trees. And um, Israel has b become... Over a period of about a hundred years or so, Israel has become uh, remarkably transformed. And at this point, you may know that Israel grows just about every single crop that's grown anywhere in the world. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, but Israel has been on the forefront of agricultural uh, and scientific and medical breakthroughs of one kind or another. So, at least from my perspective, as you read the Torah, you see the fact that the Lord said to Israel, um, part of the covenant relationship that I have with you is that I will bless you so that the land will be fruitful. Now, you can argue, justifiably, that Israel at this point is not uh, fully in compliance with God's will, with God's Torah. Um, there are some who are, but um, obviously part of the picture in Israel is the fact that there is a thriving and a growing Messianic Jewish community, uh, a community of believers, by the way, not only Jews, but Jews and Arabs and expatriates from different parts of the world. Um, and also you have uh, a growing community of Jews who are Torah observant but who have not yet met Yeshua as their Messiah. So you have, uh, in addition to a very large secular majority, you have a community of people who are really seeking God. In any event, you can argue, but I, 
I would have to say that from my perspective, you look at Israel and you see the hand of God's blessing on the country. How else would you interpret the fact that Israel in lots of ways is prosperous? And by the way, Israeli economy came through the massive meltdown, uh, massive economic meltdown that has gripped the United States and other countries relatively intact. Israeli economy has not tanked like, like the rest of so many other societies. I would have to say that God's hand is on the people. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And throughout Israel's history, that has not always been the case. That certainly is not the case in Jeremiah's time. Um, Jeremiah, by the way, is somewhat analogous to someone who's on a boat uh, on, on a river that is quickly heading um, off a ma massive waterfall. And I don't know if you, you, if you can relate to that picture of, of feeling like the water is rushing uh, and preparing you to go off a cliff or off a waterfall. And that's essentially what's happening with Jeremiah. Um, by the way, just a little bit of background about Jeremiah. He prophesied at a time when Israel was in sad, sad shape spiritually. And yeah, you had a couple of uh, kings um, such as um, Hezekiah and Josiah who brought about a reformation of the country um, you, you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, particularly with Josiah. And by the way, that's a fascinating story. Um, it was such, Josiah is a young king, and he sends um, his, uh, his secretary, his male secretary, to check out this, uh, this, the temple that has been in sad shape. And he comes back, and he says, you know, uh, the uh, one of the other guys found this book, and I think it is the book, uh, the scroll of the Torah. And Josiah has it brought back and read to him, and he tears off his he tears his clothes, and he, he recognizes the fact that yes, it is the Torah, and it has been dusty for a long time, for several decades, and so the country was in sad shape, and that's the time when Jeremiah was beginning his ministry. Um, and as time goes on, um, Josiah dies and the other kings that take over are absolutely rotten to where the Lord looks at the nation and says, okay, that's it. It is time for judgment. And he allows, he not only allows, he brings the Babylonians and they come and destroy, destroy the land, as you're well aware of. But what I find fascinating about Jeremiah is that he's exactly the opposite of Elisha and Elijah. You know, I look at these guys and I think, these guys are immovable. They're like a, a rock. Uh, nothing seems to move them, especially Elisha. And uh, I can't relate to that because I have moments when I stand before the Lord, as Linda was saying earlier today, standing before the Lord and say, Lord, I love you. You're absolutely magnificent. But my faith is kind of wobbly today. Can you relate to that? 
And uh, this is Jeremiah. Read the book of Jeremiah sometimes if you haven't done so. On one hand, it is depressing because you see uh, God's judgment about to be poured out on the land. But in some ways, and, and you might consider my sense of humor to be a little sick, and I, I would grant that. Um, but Jeremiah has these times when he just has fits with God, like no, nobody else in Scripture. He says, God, what are you doing? You put me in this position uh, for what reason? And I'm banging my head against the wall, and nothing seems to be happening, and you're not helping me out here. Particularly in chapter 15. Let's turn to in chapter 15 here for a minute. Chapter 15 and verse 17. And these are strong words, folks. I, I don't encourage you uh, to use them very lightly. Um, verse 17 of chapter 15 Verse, verse 17 and 18, I did not sit in a circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult because your hand upon me was upon me. I sat alone. You filled me with indignation. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? Now, this is Jeremiah talking to God. Not God talking to Jeremiah, but Jeremiah talking to God. And you would think that the Lord would be justified in looking at Jeremiah and saying, you're out of here. Let me press a button, <laughs> trap door, you're, you're history. And uh, I think that's probably the way we would respond to Jeremiah. Um, but, you know, what's magnificent here in Scripture is God's amazing chesed, His covenant committed loyal love, His compassion, His, pa his patience. And by the way, Jeremiah ministered under these conditions for 40 years. I think I would be ready for the nuthouse after, after 10 years under the, these conditions. But the Lord doesn't jump on him. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. In other words, the Lord is, is simply saying to him, Jeremiah, look, you're, you're, you're flying off of the mouth here, and this is not real productive, and I'm not really thrilled by what you're saying, so you need to stop, you need to repent, you need to ask forgiveness, Confess, ask my forgiveness, I'll forgive you, I'll cleanse you, I'll strengthen you, I'll get you going again so that you can do the job that I've called you to do. Can you relate to that? I can. Um, he's, he's struggling. I don't know about you, I find that delightful. Because that's a page from my book. And what is especially delightful is God's response. You know, the Lord deals with him basically like a, like a parent with a kid who had just fallen and done something stupid. The parent comes and, and says, uh, come on, let me clean you up. 
and get you fixed and knock it off and, and let's going again, get going again. And that's what the Lord does here with Jeremiah. Even when he goes over the top, he challenges him to repent of bitterness. And there's bitterness, folks. Repent of bitterness and to affirm, reaffirm the validity, the validity of his call. And say, okay, Lord, you're right. Of course you're right. And you have a job for me to do. And yes, I've been gritching and grousing and kvetching, but I'm sorry. Forgive me and cleanse me and get me going again. That's what Jeremiah is doing. And, and the Lord gets him going again. And, and part of the, the picture here for us, you and I, if you're here and you know Yeshua and you see yourself as one of his servants, you recognize the fact that God's word, first of all, has to come through you. It has to percolate through you. You know, we sometimes think that, that the Word of God, what we communicate to people, is basically like a shtick, you know, sort of a, a sales presentation. You learn it, you, you, you have a down path, you tell somebody, and it really makes no difference to you. But that doesn't work, folks. The Word of God has to percolate, has to go in us, become part of our spiritual DNA, and out of that, then we speak whatever it is that God tells us to speak. And that's what we find here with, with Jeremiah. It, we see the struggle that he has with the situation, the struggle that he has with God, and how that God comes back and encourages him and tells him to keep on keeping on, as the saying goes. <laughs> I have a job for you to do. And so as we read chapter 17, you know, people look at that and they say, this is wisdom literature. Um, in other words, it, it is proverbial. Well, it may be proverbial. However, again, let us see it through the filter of Jeremiah and his life and his struggle. How that uh, he pro proclaims a message of warning to his people and imminent judgment. You guys better repent or else God is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks and uh, people just don't listen you know chapter 17 verse 1 the sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus I mean you know people are just that spiritually stupid in, in dense to where they're not able or not willing to understand what God has to say and and somehow in the process, Jeremiah looks at his people and recognizes that some of the same inclinations that he finds in his people are also in him, which is why we find in, in 17 verse 9, this the following statement, the heart is more deceitful than all else and it is desperately sick. In other words, he's not speaking general human conditions, the, the folks out there who are living in Jerusalem far away from me. He is including himself in the process because he realizes just who he is. And by the way, this is where 
people tend to break their teeth over th these kinds of statements, particularly in traditional Judaism and in society around us. You know, people's inclination is to say, I'm, I'm a good person. You know, I, I try hard and, and God is a loving God and, and uh, He will, of course, welcome me into His house, which is heaven, uh, if they believe in heaven. And traditional Judaism speaks about this kind of pull between the good inclination, Yetzer HaTov, and the evil inclination, Yetzer HaRa. But it basically states that, you know, we've got the mojo, we've got the power to be able to overcome the evil inclination. And that is not what Scripture tells us, here and also in other places. For example, in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our, uh, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And one of the rabbis, medieval rabbis, uh, Kimchi, really gets it, really nails it. And he says, look, even when you go to do a good deed, are your motives absolutely pure? Are you absolutely altruistic? Or do you, do you do the deed and you say, somewhere in the back of your mind, you have this desire that somebody will see and will notice you and will affirm you and, and will add to, your, uh, to the good image that they have of you. A point both in Isaiah and in Jeremiah is that we deal with reality, and that is that sin... Inclination to rebel against God is every part of our operating system. It has corrupted our entire computer, so to speak. And at least for me personally, this is not depressing because I realize one basic fact, and that is I'm not expected to fix things, but the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, is able to point things out, number one, number two, give me the ability to stop back and say, I'm sorry. You're right. Lord, that stinks. Please forgive me and cleanse me from it and give me the right heart in this area. Rather than try to engage in self-cleansing and self-reformation, which really gets us nowhere. Because the truth is, the only one who really knows and understands us is God. Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. In other words, the, one, the only one who has a complete scan of who we are is God. He sees right through us. In fact, Psalm 139 tells us that that even before we begin to think, God knows what we're about to think, what we're about to say. Now, it's both kind of spooky and comforting at the same time. Spooky in the sense that you know you cannot snow God. Comforting in the sense that you stand before God naked, so to speak, and you, you say, I don't have to prove anything to you. You know me inside and out. And it is comforting, it, 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 it is freeing because it's part of a 
relationship with God that is based on trust. You have trust in the Lord. But often we don't. Often we don't. Often, often we take and put on, on the pedestal all kinds of things that really don't belong being there. Either our own supposed strength and our own supposed ability to do things or our expectation and dependence on other people. We all do that. We all do that. We all depend on man, mankind, womankind in one form or another. You know, I remember several years ago, I became friends with one of the uh, area pastors, a very special brother. And it seemed like this guy had the golden touch. Everything he did was absolutely wonderful. He seems to be humble. He seemed to have a, a great uh, walk with God. He seemed to be uh, someone who was endowed with power from God to do all kinds of amazing things. And so my foolish inclination was, well, you know, let me, let me snuggle up to this guy, get a little close to him, and maybe some of that pixie dust from him will, will come on me and, and bring about that transformation. Well, not to no one's great surprise, over, over a period of time where we're sitting and eating lunch, and this guy unburdens himself, and what I heard coming out of him was a shocker. Um, nothing foul, but he was basically saying, you know, I'm just sick of people. They're, they drive me nuts, and, you know, I can't trust anybody, and, and they do you dirt, and, you know, why did God put me in this position? I stepped back, and I went, whoa! <laughs> and then I realized the simple fact that we are all the same. And it is absolutely foolish to put any of us on a pedestal. Because sooner or later, that person will come crashing down from the pedestal. That's true for all of us. Whether we have the word rabbi before our name or not. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Incurable. The Word of God is very strong about our inclination to depend on the wrong thing or the wrong person instead of God. You see that, for example, with Israel earlier in chapter uh, in Isaiah 31, where the people were facing, this is during Isaiah's time, about a hundred years before, the people were facing the, uh, the big bad bears of the time, the Assyrians, and they tried to make arrangement, alliance with the Egyptians. And this is what God had to say. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Simple fact, folks, is that none of us, let me say that again, none of us can bear the freight 
of being someone else's savior. None of us. And Lord knows in ministry, I've had enough times where folks have tried to do that with me. And I said, forget it. Um, I'm not the Lord. I make mistakes, and you'll see that. And Yeshua Tzion is not about me. It's about Yeshua. You say amen to that. Amen. How do you know? It? And there is a balance here. There is a balance because obviously in working relationship with people, you have to have the ability to have some basic trust. If you have absolutely no trust in somebody, you have no relationship with them. Right? Would you want to have a friendship or a relationship with someone that you couldn't trust any more than you can throw them? Any farther than you can throw them? Of course not. And so in a mishpacha, in a spiritual community like ours, there has to be some healthy degree of trust in each other. Where you look at a person and you know that what you see is what you get. That they're not trying to snow you or make all kinds of moves and and that when you talk to them, you're not seeing several layers. There has to be some basic degree of trust, especially as we communicate, especially as we work with each other. So scripture is not saying that we cannot have any trust in people whatsoever. But the acid test, the way you determine what is the proper and a healthy trust in a person is simply what it does to your relationship with God. Does it promote your relationship with God? Does it strengthen your relationship with God? Or does it weaken it? Because if you notice here, at the end of verse 5, the person who trusts in mankind and makes his flesh, flesh his strength. In other words, depends on, on people uh, to, to be their absolute support, their heart will turn away from the Lord. If you have healthy dependence, healthy expectation, healthy trust in people, then it'll promote a stronger trust in, in the Lord. Because people will point you, will point your direction towards more of the Lord. And you'll find that you're drawing closer to Him. The person who wants to draw your attention to Him rather than to the Lord, you have a basic problem. And if we put the wrong kind of trust in, in a person rather than in God, we miss out on what the Word of God says. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor His ear too dull to hear. Where is your faith today? Your ability to trust the Lord. Has it been getting stronger or are you looking to depend upon yourself or other people? What Scripture says here is that if we do that, 
We will be cursed. Now, that's a nasty word, isn't it? You don't want to say, I'm cursed. There's There's the passive and there's the active. The passive is that if you choose to depend upon yourself and upon people rather than God, you will miss out on the blessings that God has for you. And if you persist in going that direction, you will experience God's judgment as the nation of Israel did. So when Scripture says, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, we need to sit up and and take notice. You know, we live in a culture that promotes hero-making or... focusing on celebrities and so on. And Jeremiah recognizes his own stuff here. Why do you think in verse 14 he says, Lord, heal me and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. By the way, saving here has to do with deliverance from bad circumstances. Lord, heal me. He recognizes the fact that there are all the fickleness of his own heart where one day he is really strong in God and say, yes, Lord, I will go do this, this, and this. The next day he is disinterested. Human nature. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, he makes a very strong statement about God's blessing. Verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. It's a choice. It's a choice to depend on God rather than circumstances. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because we are programmed to place our security and our sense of well-being on the facts on the ground. We see things, positive things that are happening, and we are convinced that everything is going well because of that, we forget the fact that God's blessings sometimes are invisible. What do I mean by that? You know, God is at work doing good things in our life and often we don't see exactly what, what they are until the Lord pulls back the curtain and makes it very obvious to us. And then we wake up and say, oh, okay, God, you've been doing all this neat stuff all along here. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He will be like a tree that planted by water, sends out its roots by stream, doesn't fear when heat comes, Its leaves are always green. Now this is very much like Psalm chapter 1. Similar kind of language. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. Very similar language with one exception. Here in Jeremiah, it speaks about a tree that is actively and vigorously 
developing a root system. Now, what is that all about? Well, let me give an example from our neighbor's yard. Our neighbor has this massive oak tree that has been around probably about 50 years. And um, we also have a large tree, honey um, locust, I'm trying to remember. Um, and over a period of some 20 years, the honey locust has been growing, 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 roughly about the same height as the oak tree, with one huge difference. The honey locust tree that's in, in our yard, you can see that it has a massive root system. It spreads its roots all over our yard and beyond. And so when, there, when we had years of drought, our tree is doing fine. I mean, it helps that we water it, but um, our neighbor's tree, on the other hand, has been suffering. And every time there's drought and there's wind, huge branches from her tree come crashing down. And it's simply because of the difference, primarily, of the root system. And this refers to the hidden life the life of the tree that nobody can see. You know, we see the branches, we see the leaves, we see the acorn on, on the oaks. We don't see what's beneath the soil. And this is what the challenge that the Word of God gives us, that our ability to depend on, on God is what makes the difference in our life. Now, what does it mean to trust God? I mean, th this may seem like a, a really uh, abstract kind of a concept. To trust God involves a couple of things. First of all, it involves a choice. We say, God, things are not going well today. In fact, I'm downright lousy. But I trust you that you're in control. That you are working a good plan for me. Because that's what your word says. That at all times, in all situations, you are at work. That you work for the good in all things. And you make that choice to say, God, I depend on you. I, I, I put my security in you. And once you do that, then the second part of that is you have a basic sense of release or ability to trust in God. And you, you, you know that things are being covered, not by you, but by God. Two part here. A choice to trust God. And second of all, the sense of well-being that comes from depending on God. Try it. You like it. You know, we can be obsessed with the facts on the ground because we don't see things change. And we can place our security or lack of security on the, on the facts on the ground, which we all do from time to time. Or we learn to step back and say, okay, God, I trust you. 
I trust you. I, I place my, my security in your hands. I'm convinced of the fact that you are working whether or not I get it and I see it or not. And then step back and release all that to him in expectation that he would be at work. That's the hidden life. Nobody sees that. You don't have billboards saying, I am trusting God. In fact, it may not look very very glamorous, very uh, exciting. People may look at you and feel like nothing is happening with you. You're not doing anything. But inwardly, you're saying, I am learning to trust God. And because of that, my life is being changed from the inside and out. And that's the picture that is given here is the person who trusts in God extends their root system into the Lord so that when, when heat comes, when heat comes, difficult circumstances, drought, which we all go through, you don't freak out because you have a basic sense of security that God has your well-being in His hands. Your leaf do not wither and you bear fruit in the right time. It's difficult sometimes to look at this and embrace it by faith and take it for what it is. But that's what the Word of God tells us. We see the same kind of parallels in the New Testament. I wanted to park there for a few minutes. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. Same thing in Colossians chapter 2. So then, just as you have received Messiah Yeshua's Lord, continue to live in Him, being rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. This is referring to the ability that God gives us to persevere, to endure not to grit our teeth and say, we'll get through it. God, get me through it somehow. But you have the ability to persevere, trusting God that He will not only get you through, but that He will strengthen you and empower you and establish you and that good fruit will come out of the difficult situation that you're going through. Folks, that's what the Lord treasures is the people who learn to persevere by being rooted in Him, not the folks who are flashy and who do things that attract a lot of attention but have no inner substance. Yeshua puts it this way, the seed on good soil stands for those with noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, 
and by persevering produce a crop. You know, in lots of ways we are like Jeremiah. We struggle because faith is not linear. Faith is a battle. And God puts us in different circumstances that stretch us, test our faith to see if our faith will stand, will grow, will expand, or, or whether we'll remain wobbly. The blessing is that this is not merely us, but that the Lord walks with us. And because He suffered, He understands us, and we're able to come to Him and receive the empowering just when we need it. He knows our inclination to sin, as we see here in Jeremiah. He knows the fact that sometimes that parts of us are rotten, that we have rotten genes. He knows all that. We don't have to prove anything to God. We simply need to learn to place our security and our confidence in Him. And then sit back and say, okay, God, you're, you're working here. I may be absolutely oblivious, but open my eyes. Open my eyes so I can see what's going on, so I can see you at work. Because I want to trust you. I want to grow in learning to trust you. I want to learn to depend on you. I want to receive that blessing that comes that you bestow upon people who learn to depend on you and who learn to trust you. I want to be a healthy tree, vigorously de developing a root system. And yes, I'm aware of the fact that this doesn't look very glamorous on the outside, but I know full well that inwardly I'm being strengthened. And yes, drought times will come, but our leaves will continue to be green and we will bear the kind of fruit that God has for us to bear. Let's pray. And would you please stand? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that you know us. You know us intimately. You know us when we stand, when we sit, when, when we talk, when we think. You know us, Lord, when we are strong in faith, when we are wobbly. Thank you, Lord, that you know all of that. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to prove anything to you, but that we have your, your love that covers a multitude of sins. Lord God, we want to be people who learn to develop a deeper root system in you. We want that to be our security. Lord God, to draw our life and our support, our sustenance from you we want, Lord God, to learn to persevere through 
challenging times that you allow or bring into our life. We, we want, Lord God, to be men and women of faith. Faith, Lord God, that grows and becomes robust because we have seen you and we have learned to trust you because you have shown yourself to be trustworthy. Thank you, Lord God, for the good plans and purposes you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, cause us, Lord God, to know where it is that we fall short in trusting you and give us, Lord God, this stronger measure of faith, Lord, that we would learn to follow you, Lord God, by faith as we have received you, that we would follow by faith. Thank you, Lord God. Speak to our hearts, Lord God, through what we have read today. We pray that your Ruach, Lord, would bear, would bring your word to our remembrance throughout this week. Teach us, Lord, not just to be hearers, but also doers of the word. In Yeshua's name. Amen.